good to see you guys. Good morning. Guess what? Mako and I are tag teaming today. It's going to be awesome. Come on up, babe. And I just want to address something in light of current legislation. Uh, I just want everybody to know, if you don't know, uh, I am a pro-life pastor. This is a pro-life church. And we have a pro-life ministry, and that is headed up by Patricia Lynn. There she is back there. And if you want to know more about it, uh, grab her or email her at patricialynn at granitecreek.org. Uh, it's, it's interesting times we live in, and uh, I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I'm not going to ask us to go protest, but I am going to ask us to go in and pray for our people, pray for the situations going on, and just believing that God's going to do a miracle. Now, finally, uh, believe it or not, there's been a number of ladies in our church that I know of personally, and I'm sure there's a number that I don't know of, that have had abortions. And you need to hear this from my mouth. I love you unconditionally, and God loves you, and he is a God of grace and a God of healing. And if you've ever had to make that hard choice, just lean into the grace and the love of God that just takes that weight right off of your shoulders. He is, he is here to heal you and love you, and this is what, this is what we believe as a church. So anyway, it, the, the ministry is great. Patricia's passionate about it. I came across it about six months ago, and she just jumped right on board. And so if you want to be more involved or just want more information, uh, just reach out to her. And again, email her or email the church. Awesome? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we get to, we get to step into your presence corporately as, as a family, as the body of Christ. And, and you meet us here. Open our ears, open our hearts, let us see your word today and how we can come closer to you, how we can become more Christ-like, more Christ-like. Bless my wife. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. She gets part one. She gets 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Set a timer like they work. Um. You know, (laughs) possession is nine-tenths of the law, right? right? So It's amazing. She's she's going to rock your socks off. Thanks, honey. Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys? Good? Okay. Let's try that again. Good morning. How are you guys? All right, that was moderately better, but, you know, it's, it's rainy outside, so um, I am so glad to be standing here in front of you guys. So, yes, Josh and I, it's so funny because we both like to teach, and so we had to, like, we had to kind of, he's like, why do you want to preach? I want to preach, too. I'm like, well, I want to preach, too. I have good stuff to say. And so this was our compromise. So um, I am going to be talking. Now, we're doing a survey of Matthew, which means that you can't stop at every little verse and go through it, which we could easily, and I would love to do that. But um, what we're going to look at in chapter 17 is the transfiguration. Do we have that picture? So this was my fault, actually. So just, (laughs) so this is the bottom half of the transfiguration. So the transfiguration, how many of you guys have ever heard of that before, the transfiguration? Okay. So for those who haven't, it's just the story here where Jesus takes up three of his disciples and they go up to a mountaintop and he transforms. He, he, he kind of starts to glow from the inside out. So what I did was I got this picture, which, uh, so I want you guys, this is an exercise. I meant this to happen. I want you guys to use your imagination. You can see Jesus's feet right up here at the top of the screen. <laughs> 
He's got great toes. They're holy toes. They're, they're holy toes. All right, so this is a famous painting uh, that a guy named Raphael did, and it's in, in, at the Vatican, hanging up in the Vatican at this, this altar. Um, but this event, I think sometimes we can hear about it in Sunday school, or our kids can, and we kind of brush it off as being this weird, freaky thing that's in the Bible. But I want to take it and break it down a little bit and kind of talk about how it fits in with the rest of Matthew, all right? Uh, let's go ahead and start reading. Now, also, just so, so for some of you that are nerdy like I am, this, the transfiguration doesn't just, is not just written about in Matthew here. It also occurs in Mark 9, Luke 9, and then 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. So let's go ahead and read this. Um, we're going to read uh, chapter 17, starting with verse 1, and we're just going to go through verse 8. All right. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So just to catch up, in chapter um, 16, if you remember, Jesus is ministering, right? He just keeps ministering to thousands of crowds. And everywhere he goes, there's, there's hordes of people following him, okay? And so he takes a little break. And he's like, he takes three of these apostles that they believe Peter, James, and John were the three that had been with Jesus the longest, okay? So he takes them, and they leave the throngs, and they go up. They go up to a mountaintop. And just to kind of get away, Jesus doesn't tell them what's going to occur, what's going to happen. And so what I want us to be thinking about is, why does Jesus, why does he, why does he take these three, and what, what's, what's the importance of this event, and why is it here in Matthew, all right? Okay, so Jesus takes, um, in chapter 1, Matthew 17, 1, so after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transformed in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. Even his clothes became as white as the light. Uh, really quick, before I forget, because I forget, you get older. You have a kid, and then you just, you have, you have old person brain. Like, and I, so it just kind of stinks. Anyways, so if I don't say this now, I'm going to forget it. What's interesting, have you guys heard of the, the Shroud of Turin? Anybody? So it's, they believe it's the, um, the burial wrappings of Jesus. And on the inside of it is, is like somebody took a, a photo negative. There's an imprint of somebody's face. It's like a picture. And they, you know, they believe that when he was resurrecting in the grave, when he was ascending, like his, his brilliance just shone through and made a photograph, basically, on the inside of the burial shroud. Pretty interesting. So it's kind of like, that's kind of the imagery that we're getting here. All right. So Jesus transforms, and his clothes become white, super bright. Verse 3. 17.3, suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, with Jesus. Verse 4, then Peter said to Jesus, look, it's good for us to be here. Okay, I just love Peter, and I'm pretty sure he was Italian, because uh, I'm just like, oh, Peter, he just is always piping up. He's hot-blooded, and he just, he charges in without thinking. How many of you guys can relate to that? That, that for sure, that's me. All right, you guys, I have more, I have more strength than you guys, because I'm like, yeah, that's me, that's me. 
All right. So Peter raises his hands. He's like, if you want, I will make three tabernacles here. Uh, One for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Listen to him. Now, what's funny about that is in verse 5, notice that Peter is still speaking. God kind of cuts him off. God the Father is like, anyways, Peter, (laughs) what I have to say is more important. And so God the Father just shows up in this cloud. You remember where else we saw a cloud? Back in the Old Testament? With Moses and the children of Israel, right? Just be like God, God is going to give Moses the Ten Commandments, right? And so there's clouds there. So it's just the Shekinah glory of God, this presence of God. All right. Um, verse 6. When the disciples heard it, they fell face down and were terrified. I don't know about you guys, but I, I think that if I were to hear God's audible voice, even though I love him and I've been a Christian for years, decades, I would, I would probably have the same reaction. Oh, just, okay, this is not comparable, but l- last night uh, I was studying for this, and all of a sudden there are these loud percussive sounds that just kind of shook our windows in our houses. And our, our neighbors, the Arteagas, they call, they're like, did you hear that? I'm like, how could you not hear it? Some neighbors that we had, and it just, I might have, I might have peed myself a little bit because it was so loud and it just shook everything. And we weren't sure if like a gas main blew. That's how big it was. It was just, you know, did somebody's car blow up? Like what happened? And it turns out it was just our neighbors having fun. They, they were letting off these huge firecrackers. And I just remember like I felt it inside and it was just like, oh, I kind of took my breath away. Can you imagine that times 50 here, not only are the disciples hearing God the Father's voice, but they are surrounded by his presence. And then we find out from Mark also that they were probably sleeping. They'd come up with us on the mountain with Jesus, right, hanging out up there. They probably drifted off, and they, they see the transformation, so they're still coming. They have morning fog, wake-up fog, right? And then God is just like, boom, he starts talking to them. So they see the transformation or the transfiguration of Jesus. Then they hear God the Father speak, and then his presence just fills everything. So they're just quaking in their boots. They're probably disoriented because they've just woken up. And they're just like, oh, what's going on? This is unlike anything that they have experienced before. And on top of it, this guy Jesus, even though they recognize that he is the Lord, that he's not just another great teacher. This is the guy, though, that they've been, you know, for doing ministry with for the last three years. They've been camping together. They've been running and evading the officials together. They've been um, sleeping around campfires together. They've been couch surfing together. They've been ministering together. There's a lot of familiarity. Can you imagine what it, I don't know, think of somebody in your life that you love dearly. It, It would be like if I think if I woke up one morning and Josh was, like, standing at the foot of the bed, like, just, like, shining and bright, you know? Well, he does every morning because, you know. But, I, I, you know, I'd be, I'd be very 
very shocked, to say the least. This person that I've known, you know, they've gone through hell and high water together, and he's like this. Can you imagine what the disciples must have been going through? Like, we thought we knew Jesus. Here's the cool thing, though. I want to just kind of call your attention to a, a few things here. So when it says here, when Jesus, uh, in, back in verse 2, when he transformed, okay, we read that, and we go in the English, oh, that, that transformed, that's cool. But once again, we don't get the, the meat of this word. Okay, in Greek, it's a compound Greek word, which is metamorph, okay, which we, we get our word metamorphosis from, all right? So Jesus, and the idea here is Jesus is not, you know, Moses, bear with me here, Remember, Moses comes out from getting, from, comes down from the mountain, and what, do you remember what his face was like? It was shining, right? It was, it was glowing. But that's because he was in the presence of God, and his body absorbed some of that. It wasn't because it was coming from inside him. Jesus, on the other hand, this metamorphosis, it's like his godness, his essence is shining through his, his meat suit, basically, his humanity. And I think, and like for just a second, the veil is torn and the disciples get to see God incarnate right here. The God man is before them. And he's just shiny and he's brilliant and, it, and it's coming from inside him. And it's so bright that it transforms his robes and his clothes. And I just think that's a beautiful picture. Now, what's awesome here is this word, metamorphosis, is the same word that's used throughout the New Testament about what happens to us when we come into contact with Jesus. Do you know that? How cool is that? Jesus is not the only one that gets to transform. We do too. What? Amen. Amen and amen. In Galatians 3.24, you guys don't have to turn to it, but write it down and look at it later. It's the same word. It talks about being the transforming of your mind. It's the same word in Greek that's used here. That should rock your sock. Let that just roll around in your head for a little bit. That the same transformative power that Jesus demonstrated, we have access to because we are the sons of the most sons and daughters of the Most High God. How awesome is that? Okay, but here's the thing, too. Okay, so context-wise, do you guys remember throughout Matthew? And then I think it was chapter 12 or 13. There was a specific point at which Jesus kind of draws a line in the sand with the Pharisees. Remember? Because at that point, do you remember what they did? Because they keep coming up to Jesus and they're nudging him. They're like, oh, you blew it. You did this. You broke this law. You broke this law. You broke this law. And so in chapter 12, they turn to premeditated murder. They're like, we're going to get rid of this guy. He's ruining our business. He's ruined it all for us, okay? Jesus is constantly butting up against the religious leaders of the day and the law. What had happened was the religious leaders had made the law the end-all, be-all. And Jesus, now, now we notice that Moses and Elijah are standing with Jesus. And that's significant because Jesus is saying, I'm the culmination of, of the law and the message of the prophets. I'm it. And the religious leaders of the day had missed it. It's, it's, it would be the equivalent to us getting tickets for Disneyland, right? 
say somebody gives us free tickets. I'll take those free tickets. Pastor Josh probably wouldn't because he hates Disneyland, but I would. I would. Um, <clears throat> and so we go to Disneyland. We're super excited, right? And we have, you know, all, the, all these ideas of, like, what rides we want to go on and what shows we want to see and which characters we want to get pictures taken with, right? And we park in the, the, the parking structure, and we get out, we get in line, we get all of our stuff, our backpack, our water, our snacks, right, our sunscreen. We get in line, and then we get on the tram that's going to take us that quarter-mile drive to Disneyland. But instead of us getting off at the park and going inside, we're like, this is the ride. This is so much fun. We're going to stay on the tram ride. And we keep looping and looping and looping. And we miss the fact that we're supposed to get off and go into the park. The tram ride is a means to an end. But we take it as being the end. And it's the same thing with the Jewish leaders. They were like, the law, that's it. This is the ride. And Jesus is like, you missed it. There's a whole amusement park. It's called the kingdom of God. But they missed it. And so Jesus finally says, I can't work with you guys. You have, you've missed it. I'm in your midst and you miss it. I am it. I'm the culmination. I am the crowning achievement of the law and the prophets. All right. Let's keep going because Josh is just like, oh, right. All right. So now what's awesome about this first of all I just think this is funny um, in verse 5 here in, in, in Matthew 17 5 um, it says while he was still speaking suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said okay this is my beloved son what I love about this and we don't get this here the the he, the, the he who is speaking is Peter and what we find out from Mark which has the same transfiguration account is that it says that Peter's talking because he doesn't know what else to do. He's like nervous talking. Instead of just shutting up and soaking in the moment, he's like, let's do something. Let's do something, and I'm going to suggest something. And, and I think a lot of times in our lives, when God pulls back the veil or he, he shows us something, we want to we quantify it, we want to put it into a method, we want to put it into a list, we want to organize it, we want to capture it. And God's like, no, 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 I don't work that way. I don't work that way. Just sit and, and soak it in. And it's interesting that it's not just God's voice, it's his presence in the cloud. And I think God says, I want you to come before me and just soak in my presence Meditate before me. Marinate in my presence. Bless you. And I just love how God the Father cuts Peter off. He's like, anyways, Peter, what I was saying was. And I think a lot of times we, we start going in the right direction, right? We have these great experiences with Jesus, and then our brain kind of gets in the way. And if you guys know me, I, I'm an intellectual. I love to, Josh and I are polar opposites. He does this. I'm doing that on the inside, but I'm thinking. I'm processing. But I think sometimes our brains can get in the way. We want to we catalog. We want to process. We want to analyze what we're going through instead of just going through it. And I think that's kind of what Peter's doing here, too, here. He's, like, freaking out. 
And it's like his humanity can't comprehend what's going on. And Jesus, and this is what I love. So, okay. So they're freaked out, right? In verse 7. Okay, let's read verse 6. When the disciples heard it, they fell face down and were terrified. A, a good reaction to God's presence. And then verse 7, and I love this. So they're just freaking out. They're on the ground. They're scared. They're terrified. And what does Jesus do? I just love this because there's a whole sermon series we could do on the touch of Jesus. He comes and he touches them first. He doesn't speak to them. He touches them. And the Bible is, the New Testament is full of Jesus touching the lepers, touching the Samaritan woman. There is power in touch. Do you know that they did research, and this is for moms, but moms, babies that had moms that touched them and were in, in constant physical contact, these babies had lower cortisol levels. Cortisol is the stress hormone, okay, especially kicks in the fight or flight. They had higher levels of endorphins. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff, too. There's power in touch. And I love this here because we're talking about kingdom, right? And Jesus is saying kingdom is about touch. Sometimes it's going to get messy. Sometimes your hands are going to touch. And you're going to get dirt on your hands or other stuff. Schmutz. <laughs> you know, life schmutz. Life is messy. But God's like, I need you to be my hands and my feet and get in there. Jesus could have been like, I just transfigured. I am pristine and pure. I'm not touching you guys. But that's the first thing that he does. He touches them in their broken, weakened state. And then what does he do? I just love this. He says, get up. He doesn't say, yeah, camp out here. Remember this moment and memorialize it. Write it on papyrus paper. He says, get up and don't be afraid. I think when God reveals stuff to us, the tendency might be to hoard it, right? We want to build a temple and keep it in the temple and make a shrine to it. But God's all about sending out. And he, what does he do? So after this, this whole section, and Pastor Josh will, why don't you come on up, honey? Um, Pastor Josh will get into this, but... He's telling them this stuff because they've got some major kingdom work to do after this. Jesus is going to go to the cross. Peter denies Jesus. And Jesus is showing himself to Peter knowing that Peter's going to deny him. That speaks a lot about the character of God. All right, Pastor Josh, take it away. Thank you, babe. How about it? Yeah. you do good? All right. Um, so they're... They're up on the mountain, and it's the mountaintop. It's like a probably the ultimate mountaintop experience, maybe with the exception of the Ten Commandments. And we believe that it was Mount Horeb, which is the highest mountain in Israel. And it's it's like retreat time. They're at the man camp. What happens when man camp is over? What happens when, when when your retreat is over? You have to come home, right? You have to leave the resorts and come back down into real life, reality. And I think this is really fun. Um, what is real life all about? It tells you. Very end of 17. 
After Jesus and his disciples arrived at Capernaum, so they've come home from the top mountaintop, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, does your teacher pay the temple tax? What is more real than death and taxes? Isn't that fun? So Jesus, he'd, he'd just been glorified, and he's got to pay taxes. Yes, Jesus has to pay taxes too. Get into this really interesting conversation. It's like, wait a minute, Jesus. And I'm sure you've had this conversation too. I'm special. I don't have to pay taxes. And they go into this conversation. Jesus, we're, we're God's children, right? We're the children of Israel or we're your disciples. Does this apply to us? Do we have, do your children have to pay taxes? And Jesus, you know what he says? He says, no, you don't have to, but you're going to pay them anyway. I take it that they were broke because they didn't have any money because Jesus, like some fish, brings them four drachma. And he says, okay, Peter, pay your taxes, and while you're at it, pay mine too. And they, re- they literally come back down into real life. If you've ever been on a men's retreat or even a women's retreat, I don't know if this applies to women because I don't know if I haven't had this experience because I'm not a woman. Um, but guys, you know this. You come back home from men's retreat, and if you have kids, what happens? What happens when you come home and you leave the bros? Mama's out. She is out of there. She's like, here are the kids. I'm going to Marshall's. I'm going to mom's house, I'm going away, I'm getting a facial, I'm getting my nails done, they're all yours. And I think this was literally what was happening, because we believe when they go home to Capernaum, they went to Peter's house. And there's kids running around all over the place. And you know Peter had some hyperactive kids, right? Like, he was that guy. He was, have you ever been embarrassed by your kids' behavior in public? I did a doozy on my parents growing up. I owned them publicly, right? I knew exactly how to get them, especially in church. Could you imagine having your kids act up in front of Jesus? This is what's going on. Is that, you know, well, let's read it. I'll prove it to you. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we just underline that. And he called a little child and had him stand among them. The other translations say there are kids here. And he calls the, the children among them. They ask a very important question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The whole theme of the series is, what is the kingdom of heaven? They ask a very important, yet it's a very human question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Basically what they're saying is, how do I access the kingdom of heaven? How do I get its power? And how do I climb this spiritual corporate ladder? The same questions we ask in everyday life. How do I get get one up on this deal? How do I get the white picket fence, two cars, three three kids, and a dog? How do I get it? How do I get what's mine? And they're saying this. Who's the best? How do I become the best inside of your kingdom? And Jesus just, I mean, he just says this. I tell you the truth, unless you, what's that word there? Change. 
It's the very same idea. It's the very same root, what Mako just talked about. The morphous, the metamorphous, the transfiguration. If you want to access heaven, if you want to experience the kingdom of heaven here on earth, here's the little mysterious secret. You have to change, transform, and morph back into a child. You saw what I did up there? You need to do this too. It even even comes across comes across to the point where we need to repent. We need to even repent of our adulthood. What? Isn't that weird to think about? Listen, keep listening. I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever, here's the fun part, humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that cool? This is where we get the whole concept of the childlike faith. Have you heard of that before? Childlike faith? It's, not, it's actually not in the Bible anywhere. It's talking about this passage here. Your childlike faith, it is the same. Remember when you were a kid? I remember when I was, I don't I forgot how old I was, but I remember when I saw Empire Strikes Back. I was like, oh, awe, childlike awe, wonder. Like, this is the most amazing thing that I've ever seen in my entire life. This is what the apostles, the disciples were experiencing when they saw Jesus transfigured. They were caught in this moment of awe and wonder. And this is what children do best. So it's childlike faith. Childlike faith wonders. Childlike faith believes. Children believe in the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, God. When you grow up, you stop believing in Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and if you're not careful, God too. Childlike faith trusts a childlike faith sees and understands and recognizes that you have a loving Heavenly Father and you put all your trust and security into Him. That's what childlike faith does. Of course, there's always serious preachers that make sure that we understand the difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. And Jesus isn't talking about a childish faith. It wasn't too long ago where He said, if you want to be my disciple... You must deny yourself, take up your own cross, and follow me. If you really want to do this, if you want to access the kingdom of heaven, deny your own, deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. Basically, what he's saying is you have to take responsibility for what you've been given. This is you have to grow up. So Jesus is not saying, I don't want you to grow up. He just says, I want you to maintain that child wonder. So a childish faith does not take responsibility. A childish faith is petty, and a childish faith is irresponsible and inconsiderate. But childlike faith is completely transformative, even in the practical. Now, Jesus goes on in this, the rest of 18, he goes on to talk about some very important stuff. He highlights the importance of being a child, first of all. That's a very strong language for anybody who misleads 
uh, your Bible might says, if you cause a child to sin, woe is you, right? Other translations say, if you cause a child to stumble, if you cause a child to, to get lost or get misdirected, woe is you. And Jesus doesn't just say, woe is you. Basically, he's saying, it's, you're gonna, we're going to put you in uh, cement shoes, and you're going to go swimming with the fishes. That's how serious Jesus is about this child thing. What is he saying? I think ultimately he's saying is us as adults, we don't have the right to abuse power over somebody that's weak. Just don't do it. I take it very seriously. Jesus is so concerned about the child, the, in, the, 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 the innocent, innocence and the security of the weak that he's saying it's so important to me that I'm willing to, this is in 18 too, this is in chapter 18 too, I'm willing to leave the 99 children, he calls them the sheep, calls them little sheep, so it's this child theme that he keeps on bringing back up again. I will leave the 99, and I'll go after that one that gets lost. So we begin to see how he values somebody that has a childlike faith. Are you struggling with real-world adult problems, and you can't win? Lust, unforgiveness, pettiness. Are you, like, you just feel like you can't get a breakthrough? Let's just say lust, for example, because Jesus talks about it. Like, you just, you can't win. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you resist, you always fall prey to that temptation, whatever that little special thing is, whatever your, you know, whatever your little hang-up is, your little demon that, that, that's under your skin. You know what Jesus says about it? It's like, it's better you just chop your hand off. It's better you chop your hand off than allow it to cause you to sin, and then you spend eternity in a hell. If your eye is causing you to sin, you just pluck it out, and that will solve the problem right there. But see, there's a reason why he's talking about childlike faith, because children don't have the same rational, logical, systemic hang-ups that, that we do. Children are free. Have you ever had, I, I, I don't know, maybe you haven't, but I've been around kids that have been, let's say they've been exposed, like six-year-old boy has been exposed to, I don't know, nudity on, they, they saw a rated R movie, or uh, heaven forbid, you know, a six-year-old boy saw some pornography. The response of a child is like, ew, gross. I'm going to get back to playing with my G.I. Joes, right? Have you seen this? Do you see why a childlike faith is so important when overcoming temptation? Because if you're like, if you're more concerned about, or more consumed about your wonder and, and the majesty of God, that you literally want to play with God, then you're not going to want to play with sin. Childlike wonder looks like this. As he talks about, does this whole section about unforgiveness. Uh, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a, a ruler that forgives his, his disrespectful servant. And the disrespectful servant that gets forgiven and that gets shown grace, in turn, he does not show grace to the people that are under him. And you know, Jesus is like, woe is he. And the whole idea is, is that if you have a childlike faith, okay, don't raise your hand on this one. Do you find it difficult to forgive people that have wounded you, that have stabbed you in the back? I have. 
It's very difficult to deal with betrayal and hurt and unforgiveness. And we can fight it, and we can resist it. We can, you know, when we're resisting against that thing, that person, and maybe you, maybe you even like, okay, I'm going to have to forgive them because I'm, I'm, I'm torturing myself, reliving this scenario over and over again. And you forgive them, but it's still there. It's because you haven't forgiven them with the heart of your child. When boys get into fights, they duke it out, right? And maybe there's some bloody noses. In 15 minutes, they've forgiven each other, and they're back to playing with their G.I. Joes. When little girls get into arguments with one another, eventually it all levels out. And then they go back to playing dress-up instead of acting like an adult and gossiping about the person. Children forgive. Children don't gossip. Children play. This is a childlike heart that God's calling us to have and to adopt. You guys doing good? I think I missed a really important part, and I don't know what it is. Childlike faith, trust, completely puts their trust in their, in, in their father. So our childlike faith means that we completely put our hope in the Lord. Childlike faith believes, believes in the miraculous, believes in the things of the father. Childlike faith has an imagination. Peter, our main character in this, in this little section that we're doing, it was his childlike faith that got him out of the boat and allowed him to walk on water. It was his rational adult mind that says, this isn't possible, you shouldn't be walking on water, and he sinks. It was his childlike faith that saw the glory of God and just fell to his knees in awe and wonder. But it was his adult mind that said, let's make this a religion and start building tabernacles and, and shrines for Moses and Elijah. Didn't get it. Had to systematize it. A childlike faith is what Jesus is after. And it gets us into the kingdom of heaven more than anything else. You still have to pay your taxes. still have to be mature. Paul fleshes the whole thing out. He says, when I was a child, I acted like a child, and I grew up, I became an adult, but I still believe, I still have hope, I still trust in the Lord. Childlike faith. All right, let me get the band and the ushers to come to the front. As they're on their way up, I'd like to read you something. This is a poem by Connie Faust. A little child does not let scientists decide. Their foolish theories matter not. He knows the truth inside. He sees the wonders of the earth, the grass, the sea, the sky. It all makes sense as he believes. That's God, the reason why. It's only as we grow in age 
and leave the days of youth, that we strain and wrestle and deny authentic truth. The teachings of the learned tell us nothing comes from naught, and something wrapped in lofty speech, lies are the gospel we're taught. Still, God keeps on pursuing, and he speaks in various ways. He shouts in storms and thunderings and whispers in a million ways. The sights that thrill us are as mere babes. They're still before our eyes. He has not left us clueless, though he often is in disguise. So open your heart to God and seek him while you may. Believes as a child. Jesus is the only way, the truth. Heavenly Father, right now, I just thank you so much for this church family and that we are opening up our hearts. We're being honest because what you speak is true. May this church continue just to spread the good news of Jesus, that he is and preaches the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, that gospel of grace. Father, I pray you bless this offering to its fullest extent. And may we just reach the world that is lost and hurting, that they don't know you as we do. May our lights shine bright in the darkness. Once again, Lord, heal us from the inside out.